Let us uh, turn back then to the chapter that we read, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. And we can read again at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I suppose this morning in the majority of services, <coughs> this will be the chapter that will be read. And this will also probably be the text that will be preached on as well. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The birth of Christ, of course, is a very special event in the history of the world. But there are many things, as we look at this particular chapter, and as the account is also given to us in the Gospel of Matthew, of things that take place around the birth of Christ that have been totally misconstrued over time. There is no question, of course, of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is it attested to us in the Gospels, but in various other sources, uh, historical sources like Josephus and various others uh, that are totally out with the sacred writings of the scriptures. And therefore, <clears throat> no one disputes nowadays, I don't think anyone really has disputed uh, <clears throat> over time, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that such a person was born, lived, was crucified, and died. But many dispute, of course, the resurrection, and that's another question altogether. But nevertheless, <coughs> there are many things that are disputed and perhaps misunderstood about the things that are written in the Gospel of Luke. We have this picture, do we not, uh, because of the census that was taking place. Uh, that's what we read at the beginning. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that throughout the Roman world uh, people should be registered. That is, that a census had to take place. And <coughs> Luke, in his usual inimitable fashion, uh, gives us historical data to be able to date that. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And it's been very interesting that many people for centuries uh, doubted the existence of Quirinius. 
There was no historical record to be found of him, and therefore people pointed at this as saying that this was the first part of the fabrication of a lie. But in the last century, <coughs> I can't remember exactly when it was now, I forgot to look it up again, I think it was about 1980 sometime, a tablet was uncovered, unearthed, bearing the inscription of Quirinius, governor of Syria. And therefore the biblical record was once again corroborated as being correct. And that is the case in all the historical detail that we find throughout Scripture. Time and time again, archaeological discoveries show to us the veracity of Scripture, that Scripture gives a true record. And as a result of this census, you see then that Joseph and Mary uh, have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem and we're told that he was of the house and lineage of David and if you go back to the genealogy that's given at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew you will see that that is laid out for us in detail there's a second genealogy taken later on in Luke uh, <coughs> which most commentators reckon to be the genealogy of Mary Although, again, that is to be debated. But I, I don't want to get sidetracked into these things at the moment. With Mary, his betrothed, as we read in verse 5, who was with child. Now, if you go back in the Gospel of Luke, of course, you find uh, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke the whole visitation of Gabriel to Mary and uh, the announcement of the conception of the child that was to be born, including his name given as Jesus. And it's quite an amazing thing when you think of it. You should pause, you and I should pause often in wonder at the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't understand it. None of us understand it. It's impossible for us to understand it. But we, we believe it by faith. And that is one of the things, again, in Scripture, that logic cannot work out for us. Logic, science, whatever way you want, there is no way that we can understand the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is what was foretold in the Old Testament. That's what the scriptures tell us would be the case. And I'm sure you're very familiar with the prophecies in Isaiah about that. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, etc., and so on. But we have this picture, and you tend to see it on Christmas cards and nativity scenes and all the other things, don't we? of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem and the child almost immediately being born in second. In fact, some maintaining that uh, she was actually, <coughs> that the child was born while she was still sitting on the donkey on the way into Bethlehem or before they even reached. But if you look carefully at what Luke writes, 
nothing could be further from the truth. He, he writes in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And we don't know how long they were there. We don't even know how long they were there before the birth actually took place. And there is a sense in which it doesn't really matter. When did this take place? Well, so many people sort of uh, look at the detail of the shepherds in the field and so on, and uh, they think, of course, that this is, uh, <coughs> this is an indication of the time of year. But again, if you go back to the historical detail of the time, <coughs> the shepherds would have been out in the fields at other times of the year, not around what we consider Christmas time. And so the question arises, and it's a very interesting question as well, when was Jesus actually born? We know that the census took place probably in the year 3 BC. Some reckon 5. We don't have an exact record of it. But what time of year? When was, when was Jesus born? If you ask the children nowadays and say, when was, when was Jesus born, etc. and so on, you ask most people, you get the answer 25th of December. I'm sorry to have to tell you that that is absolutely wrong. Completely and absolutely wrong. If there's one thing we can say for certainty, Jesus was not born on the 25th of December. That date was set much, much later. It was declared by Pope Julius I in the year 350. And the reason for that was a Roman festival which was known as the Saturnalia, which took place on the 25th of December and had taken place long before the birth of Christ and continued, and which was a festival of great immorality and licentiousness among the people, in the, not only in Rome, but throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, it was to honour the god Saturn. And when the Emperor Constantine <coughs> was converted to Christian Christianity uh, during the 4th century, he decreed that the Feast of Saturnalia be replaced with the celebration of the birth of Christ. That was in the year 336 AD, and it was officially ratified by the Catholic Church, and I'm using the term Catholic there, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic, meaning the universal church. It was ratified by Pope Julius I, as I said already, in 350 AD. So <clears throat> we're still left with the interesting question, when was Jesus actually born? Well, it's very difficult for us to make this out, but there's a clue given to us in Luke chapter 1, which is very, very helpful. And if you go back to Luke 1 and verse 5, you'll find a little detail in it that will perhaps help us to solve the mystery. 
and it's with reference to the birth of John the Baptist. Now, you'll remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, first cousin. <coughs> Some say simply a cousin, others say first cousin, but again, we're not given the detail exact of that. But we're told in chapter 1 and verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And then it goes on to tell us about Elizabeth and to tell us about uh, John the Baptist and his birth and so on. Now, if we know, <coughs> and we're told later in the chapter, that John the Baptist is six months approximately older than Jesus, then if we knew when John the Baptist was, was born, we would be able to work out more or less when Jesus was born. And the clue is in verse 5. A priest named Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, of the division, or the course, as it says in the authorised version, the course of Abijah. Now, what did that actually mean? What it meant was that from the days of David and Solomon, the service of the priests in the temple was divided into courses. Or, if you want to think of it in modern terms, tours of duty. They were on duty for a month at a time. And among, if you go back to the books of Chronicles, you will find details given of many of these courses and the number of singers, priests, etc., and various other things that were on duty in the temple, uh, numbering thousands of people. So if we knew when the course of Abijah was on duty, we would be able to work out exactly, or more or less exactly, at least the month of the birth of Christ. Now, again, I'm not going to go into all the detail of this. Uh, it's been researched, and people have managed to work out from Jewish historians and from details given when Zechariah, or the course of Abijah, was actually on duty. And to forward from that and come up with the fact that the most likely month for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was actually October. Now, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. But we have to put into perspective so many things that happen around Christmas time at this time of year and so many details that people deal with and hold to be correct and in fact <coughs> are not scriptural at all. You've already seen one with the three wise men. There's no mention of three. And there's another one that comes perth here uh, in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now the word that, used Luke, that Luke uses for inn there in the Greek is not the word that he uses in other places. It's a different word altogether. And in fact, it's the same word that he uses for the upper room where the Last Supper takes place. It's the same word in Greek. What did that mean? <clears throat> it meant, of course, 
that if you go back to look at the houses and the way they were constructed in those days, and remember that Bethlehem was not on a major route, there was no inn there, there was no main road going through Bethlehem, and therefore there would have been no inn. <coughs> so what did it actually mean? It meant, of course, that the houses were built in two stories. And the bottom for the ground floor <coughs> during the night was normally where the animals were kept, while people slept upstairs in what was known as the upper room. And therefore it would seem that there was no place in the relatives of the house of Joseph for Mary and the child in the upper room, or to give birth in the upper room. And Therefore, it almost certainly took place on the ground floor, uh, perhaps with the animals present, perhaps not. More than likely, the animals were removed. So the picture that we have, and the hymns that speak about Jesus uh, being born in a stable, etc., and all the rest of it, the word says stable is not scriptural in the slightest. There's no mention of a stable anywhere in the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and there's also another word that causes us a little problem, which is the word manger. What was a manger? The word manger simply meant a feeding trough, a trough in which usually a channel on the floor, perhaps on the clay floor, or a stone, stone uh, implement of some kind, into which the feeding stuff for the animals was put. But if you go back to translations into English before 1611, before the authorised version, then it's not translated as manger. I have uh, in my possession, my father's, a 1583 New Testament, Tyndall translation. And the word that's used in it is cratchit, which is an old word for a basket. And therefore it would seem that in the absence of a crib, what was used was a feeding basket, probably lined with straw, in which the baby was actually laid. Now, these are details, but again we have to be careful of uh, sort of uh, exaggerating the details. And we have the same with the shepherds. It's fascinating, isn't it? that the first people to whom the news of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is given are unnamed. There's no mention of their names. We don't even know how many shepherds there were. And isn't it quite amazing as well, and I'll speak more about this this evening, that the first, the first news of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from his parents, is given to shepherds. There's a symbolism in that, of course, and we see that running through the Psalms. Psalm 23, and so many other Psalms, where Jesus himself says later on, I am the good shepherd. And it's to the shepherds, those lowly shepherds, and remember again that shepherds were regarded as the lowest of the social classes, in uh, Jewish society at the time, 
that this angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord shone round about. Have you ever wondered what that must have been like? The glory of the Lord shining round about them. How you and I would react if we saw the glory of the Lord shining round about Personally, I would think I would feel terrified by what that involved. They were filled with great fear. It's no wonder that the shepherds were filled with great fear. But it's what the angel says to them that calms them down. Fear not. Fear not. Remember reading once that there are 364 fear nots in Scripture. One for every single day of the year. And don't ask what happens on a leap year. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And you notice again, it's not restricted. It's for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And again, the Old Testament term, the Messiah, is the term that's used. The Messiah in Hebrew, Christ, Christos, and the Greek mean exactly the same thing. The anointed one who will come. And all the Old Testament prophecies, and again, we don't have time to go through all of them. All the Old Testament prophecies go through the coming of Messiah. They're given the sign, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, and then the multitude of angels appear. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth this is the real message of Christmas. You see, the term Christmas, if you go, if you break it down, it means its origin is Christ Mass. Now, you know, of course, that the Mass was a special service that was held to commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus. It's the equivalent of a communion service. And therefore, a special Mass would take place in the Catholic Church through the centuries on the 25th of December. And it becomes known as the Christ Mass. And it first appears in English, written down in Old English, in the year 1038. That's the first reference we have to it in English of Christmas. Christ Mass. I wonder if you went out today and asked people how, what's so important about Christmas for them. <coughs> what answer would we get? What's important for you about Christmas? Is it, and we can forgive the children for this of course, is it the presents? Are you looking forward to your presents tomorrow, if you get any? Or is there much more to it than that? 
There should be much more to it than that. Because the thing that really matters about Christmas is glory to God in the highest. Isn't it amazing when you think of it? That before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity had conceived in their eternal decrees the plan of salvation so that you and I would be able to come to worship and to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. That's the most amazing gift of Christmas. That's the most amazing gift that God could give us. A Trinitarian act in which the Lord Jesus Christ would take on himself human flesh and then, of course, in the events that we all know, be crucified and resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father so that each and every one of us would have access to the gifts that God gives. What are the real gifts that we should be thinking about at this time? What's the greatest gift that you have been given by God? Everything connected <coughs> with the Lord Jesus Christ has to do with that gift. But the gift is not fully given until the work of atonement is carried out on the cross. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And we so often forget <clears throat> that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. I once heard someone putting it this way and saying, instead of the word sinner, we should simply use the word human. Because all humans are sinners. But the word human doesn't bring with it the whole concept of our separation from God by the fall that took place in the Garden of Eden. When we simply refer to ourselves as humans rather than sinners, we leave aside the mercy and the grace of God. And it's perhaps the grace of God that is the greatest gift that we are given at this time. Through the work of the cross, that God's grace is poured out and freely available to you and I as sinners. What does grace stand for? Well, there are various uh, things that are put to it, but of course the simplest one to remember is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's perhaps the simplest definition of grace. But it's a total, a, a, another thing altogether to understand what grace actually means. 
We say it so often in the benediction, do we not? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But grace is much more than that. Grace is the free pardon that is offered to everyone. Everyone. And you see that this is what is said here. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's not for some people. It's for all people. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying with that that there is what is called the universal atonement. There are some people who believe in a universal atonement. Uh, there is one particular church that practices and preaches that. And everybody eventually will be saved. The scripture is very clear that that is not the case. That that is not the case. But the offer of the gospel is to all people. That is why we preach it. That is why it is preached throughout the world. That is why people have gone out with the gospel to all parts of the world. We don't know who God's elect are. And I'm very thankful that we don't. I remember hearing one preacher saying, if I knew who God's elect were, then I would only preach to them. But he said, I'm very thankful that I don't. Because probably I would start choosing who to preach to. And I would only preach to some people. And the others I don't like, I wouldn't bother preaching to them at all. But God's election is totally different. Good news to all and if you go back to Isaiah, you remember, of course, that that was the case. That the Messiah was promised as a light to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And unless I'm very much, much mistaken, I think all of us in here today will be Gentiles. Grace, the gift of grace, the gift of salvation. And we are so used, and we expect at this time of year to be given gifts. And the analogy is very similar to the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. When someone offers you a gift tomorrow, probably picks it up from under the Christmas tree, if you have a Christmas tree, and says, your name is on this. This is for you. There's something you have to do with that gift. You have to accept it. You have to accept it believing that it's worth having. Now, I know and I remember so often when I was young how many Christmas gifts I remember opening and being totally disappointed by what was inside, especially socks from old coyotes and things and so on, things that uh, many years later perhaps became uh, useful but wasn't exactly what you were looking for at that time. But nevertheless, when you accept a gift, you do so believing that whoever is giving it to you 
is not giving you something that will harm you. It's giving you something that is for your good. And it's giving you usually a gift because of love. Isn't that exactly the same analogy as we have with the gift of salvation? It is a gift offered through love. Love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The love that was there from all eternity between the members of the Trinity. Love going backwards and forwards between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before anything was created. Before anything was created. What the theologians call reciprocal love. Never increasing because it can't. And never decreasing because it can't. And that's the same love with which salvation is offered to you through the blood of the cross. And again, what do you do with a gift that is offered to you freely? Or oh, you don't see people rejecting or refusing Christmas presents before they've opened them. But it's amazing how many refuse and reject the offer of the gospel, even when they hear it, freely offered to them, as so many perhaps will in the course of this day, perhaps listen to a church service, maybe even go to church the only time in the year, and they hear about the child who was born. And they may even hear about the offer of salvation. Why the Lord Jesus Christ? That should be the focus of our meditation. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come? To offer himself, as the writer to the Hebrews says, as a sacrifice, once and for all. For the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. But this man, when he had offered himself once as a sacrifice, then proceeds to the right hand of the Father. The offer of the gospel is still open. I wonder what are you doing with that offer this morning? You've maybe heard it many, many times. You're hearing it now. You have no guarantee that you will ever hear it again. No guarantee that you will ever hear it again. And what do you do? What will you do if you reject it again this morning? The free offer of the gospel. The atonement that was rendered through the death of this child. This child who has come as the saviour of the world, who is offered to you, who laid down his life for you on the cross of Calvary, that you might be cleansed from your sins and appear before God in the day of judgment. That's what atonement means. Break the word atonement down. At one meant with God, to be at peace 
at one with God. Isn't that what the angel said? Peace to all men. And that peace is only to be found when you come to close in with the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour. And the promise that is given is that if you seek earnestly with all your heart, that you will find that peace through the shed blood of the cross. It all begins with the birth of the child. But really, if you think about it, it doesn't all begin with the birth of the child. It began in eternity. Millennia, perhaps, before even the creation of the world. When the divine plan was laid out, in which, <coughs> in which a saviour would be born and would come to carry out his atoning work on the cross. May the Lord grant that you meditate on these things over the next day or two. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you above all for the gift of salvation, the gift of peace, the gift of eternal life, and so many other gifts that you give to us daily in your providence that we take for granted. We thank you particularly for the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost and that that would bring people to a saving knowledge. And we thank you that the Spirit is still carrying on this work. We pray, O oh Lord, for any here this morning uh, <clears throat> who are struggling perhaps with their faith or struggling perhaps even to come to faith or perhaps watching online and yet not willing to commit themselves. We pray that your spirit would uh, carry out the work of drawing them to you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that they would come to know you as the greatest gift at this time of year and for the rest of their lives. Be with us now as we conclude our work and pardon sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us conclude then by singing verses in Psalm 24 on page 230. Psalm 24. <clears throat> At verse 7, the last four verses, verses that show us the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this? Ye gates, lift up your heads on high, ye doors that last for aye. Be lifted up that so the King of glory enter may. But who of glory is the King? The mighty Lord is this, even that same Lord that great in might and strong in battle is, and so on to the end of the psalm. Psalm 24, page 230 at verse 7. Ye gates, lift up your heads on high. Ye gates, lift up your heads on high. Ye doors that Oh.
Spirit be with you all now and forever.